we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. I am uh, Kabil Foster and I am back in New York City. Uh, I am finished with my vacation uh, and I am joined uh, in a rather unique uh, and unusual way uh, by my co-conspirators, Mr. Matt Welch, editor-at-large Reason Magazine, uh, and one Michael Moynihan, uh, who does things at Vice News. Uh, Gentlemen, how the hell are you and where are you? Oh, man. Matt, where are we? Uh, Matt's actually standing right behind me on a different Skype connection uh, from the media center at the RNC in Cleveland. So that's where we are, and yeah, that's where we this, both, I think, desperately want to leave. Uh, it's uh, it's this amazing like uh, class reunion of uh, terrible political journalists that you realize that you are one of uh, now. So you're just like walking around and uh, and seeing, uh, you know, Dan Rather. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Pete Dominic over at uh, over at Sirius, and uh, the Young Turks are within my eye shot somewhere. Timothy B. P. Carney, uh, it's just nonstop. David Frum, I think I've become good friends with David Frum during this convention. There's always like one person, uh, unexpected person, that you end up spooning with. And uh, he's a very nice guy. He's a, he's a very nice guy. So regardless of what your politics are and your view of David Frum, and I'm sure our listeners have strong views, um, uh, David is a, is actually a very lovely guy. Yeah, uh, but uh, everyone here is buzzing, Camille, as you can imagine, about uh, the uh, Ted Cruz jujitsu uh, uh, shiv to the ribs last night, Ooh. in which he actually actually drew booze, <laughs> orchestrated booze even, uh, uh, from uh, a crowd by saying that what you really should do is vote your conscience and vote for people who are going to support the Constitution up and down the line. Um, and it was uh, drowned in a hail of booze, which I think is one of the uh, most remarkable uh, micro moments uh, uh, at a political convention, at least since I've been going to these things since 2000. I, I want to get into I, all of that. And I, I think given that we, given that you both are there, maybe we just devote this conversation to the convention as a whole. Um, it is Thursday morning or Thursday afternoon. Hopefully this will drop later today. Um, but the Donald hasn't spoken yet. Uh, our, no. our buddy Ted Cruz went last night, uh, as Matt was just alluding to. Um, so uh, Moynihan, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, highlights wise, lowlights? Uh, give me some uh, eccentric anecdotes that we can uh, offer the good uh, people. On- yeah, it's one giant low light, so uh, there is that. Uh, but one of the interesting things that happened this morning that very few people are talking about is um, Ted Cruz uh, was speaking here in Cleveland. He was on CNN, and he's a kind of a, a, a cop that got onto the Chiron, and it was a head nod towards Gary Johnson in a way. I mean, I'm taking it that way because he said, look, I can't. Uh, I won't vote for Hillary Clinton. No surprise there. I'm not uh, endorsing Donald Trump. Uh, he is still no surprise there. And I'm looking at other options. Um, unless he's talking about Jill Stein or running himself, uh, that would leave <laughs> the person. And I spent the morning with that person, uh, uh, Gary Johnson. I was with him a little bit last night. And Gary, who, by the way, is one of the least presidential guys I've ever met because of one quality. He is the nicest man I've ever met. Um, so spent some time with him last night and today. And Gary is, what I love about him is that you have these politicians, Donald Trump's of the world, uh, Hillary Clinton's, that are so, you know, 
used to the celebrity, so used to being the center of the spotlight. Gary Johnson has this sort of childlike wonderment at the whole thing. And he's, I said, you know, you're pulling 13% rising. And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, man, can you believe it? And he's like, so he's like so excited about the whole thing, a bit exhaustive. But, you know, the spoiler status of, of, of Gary Johnson is an interesting thing. The, he's drawing votes, it appears, equally from Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So I suspect that's why it comes out in the wash. That's why it's not a bigger story. But he's at 13%. He needs two more percent. And with this sort of momentum and all the media he's doing here, he looks like he's going to be going to uh, to the DNC, too, just to do media. He said he didn't want to be here. He didn't want to be at the DNC either. But if that media pushes him another couple percent, he's going to be on the debate stage. And that changes things. Well, I, I want to get... I, uh... I was going to ask if you if you both wanted to like weigh in on the the Ted Cruz non endorsement uh, endorsement speech last night. Um, I, I've I've heard a lot of things about it. I I think I've made up my mind, uh, but I'm wondering. I mean, was it brave, classless, craven? Yes. <laughs> uh, no, it, it wasn't classless at all. I mean, uh, the, the 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 thing to remember about this speech and about speeches at conventions in general is that they are vetted and approved within an inch of their lives. And so the crazy thing to contemplate this afternoon, the morning after, the day after, and the weeks after, is that Donald Trump knew that this was going to happen, and he liked it. He liked it. He might have personally said, ah, oh, shrug it off. He's, we're, I mean, we're in Radio Row now. I was talking with some Booker friends of mine. They said you couldn't like find a, a Trump surrogate, a Trump attack dog, Monday through Wednesday at all. They weren't anywhere here. And I come down here, and it's boom, Roger Stone, Boom, Rick Scott. Boom, uh, uh, Peter King. Mike. All the all the kings uh, who are terrible uh, are are out here, and they're all douching on Ted Cruz. So Trump wanted this confrontation. His campaign manager, Paul Manafort, orchestrated the booze. He was going down on a convention in like the New York, uh, uh, and they also told Cruz that they were going to orchestrate the booze. So like, think about, try to wrap your hands around, mind around the kabuki of all of that. Um, it's possible that the Trump people uh, were, were didn't understand how the words on the page would play in the room. And think about how Newt Gingrich responded uh, to this, which is, he said, you know what, I just want to amplify what Ted Cruz said here. He said you should vote your conscience and vote for someone who's going to protect the Constitution. So obviously that person has to be Donald Trump. Uh, as uh, my good uh, uh, sexual partner David Trump pointed out, uh, <laughs> Trump could have played that moment totally differently. Instead of booing when he said you should vote your conscience and vote for the guy who's going to protect the Constitution, Trump, who had just entered the room, he could have stood up and gave a standing ovation and said, you know, that's right. And by the way, this guy and what over I'm, here. And what I'm hearing from other people who are, who are there at the convention is that, that um, the remarks that were made after Ted Cruz spoke by Mr. Gingrich were in fact in the teleprompter. Like he planned yeah, they were. to say exactly that, which is, it is rather interesting that they, that they're sort of calibrating that. But I, I mean, as you know, I loathe sort of the political horse race of it all. I definitely get like the political uh, machinations that are taking place and Ted Cruz trying to position himself for the future. Um, but I can't let myself forget um, and one, I, I think it was a little like limp, limp wristed. Like it wasn't, it wasn't all that interesting to me. Like, great, you didn't endorse him. You could have done something even, even crazier than that. You could have gotten up there and just endorsed Gary Johnson and walked off the stage. You could have refused to come. There are any number of ways to register your dissatisfaction that I might have had a little more respect for. But also, just looking at the source, I mean, you are the guy. You were the first guy amongst all of your uh, compatriots running for this uh, nomination. To, to, to essentially 
not endorse Donald Trump, but to give him your stamp of approval, to nod, yeah, to nod affirmatively at, at all of the dissension that he was stirring up, all of this claptrap now uh, about freedom. And I say claptrap about freedom because he talks about freedom and fences and economic protectionism. Give me a break, dude. Give me a break. You've been inconsistent. You're an opportunist. You are a political operative. Um, I'm not buying it. I, I, don't, I don't think it was brave. Uh, so I, I, was not a, I was not clapping while watching uh, via the C-SPAN web stream. Uh, Moynihan, uh, maybe you, you, you got thoughts on this? Well, you know, I mean, look, I was, I was in a conversation with Gary Johnson when the uh, standing in the perimeter of uh, the upper deck when the cascades of booze came pouring out of the hall. And, you know, it was an, it was an interesting moment because I can't remember anything like this in, in my lifetime. Um, and there obviously is no um, sort of corollary here in, in, recent, in the recent past. But, you know, it is a fantastic moment for people like you and people like Matt and like myself who loathe this process, loathe these parties, and when every single person that I talk to, imagine this on the Democratic side, every single person I talk to here, and you can say, well, they're media elites, they're, they're, they're sort of Republican establishment types, that might, may be the case, but it's very, very hard to find anyone who's enthusiastic about it, and that includes people in the GOP. So with two, I was with a guy um, uh, yesterday, two days ago, Henry Barber, who is the um, uh, nephew of Haley Barber. Uh, everybody remembers Haley Barber, the former chair of the yeah. GOP, and, or the RNC. Uh, and so uh, Henry Barber's an interesting guy because he was the one of the authors of the autopsy report, along with Ari Fleischer and a few other people. And he's, uh, he's a party man. So when I asked him, you know, hey, man, you said you got a immigration reform, you have to do. You have to appeal to X, Y, and Z people, and the opposite of that has happened. There's actually a fantastic line in the the autopsy. I think I've mentioned it before, in which uh, the authors say we have to make Hispanics feel like we want them in the country if we want them a part of our party. And the interesting thing about that is that the that is like almost as if the Trump campaign looked at that autopsy and decided to do the opposite thing. And I said to Barbara, I was like, look, you wrote these words look at where we are now. How does that make you feel, right? Is this a good thing? And, you know, look, these guys are party men. And it was like a hostage video. It, he is speaking with a gun to his head, and he's like, I think we need to defeat Hillary Clinton. And my, my, the thing that I get from so many RNC people that I've talked to is that, you know, it's important for us to vote against somebody, not vote for somebody. And that's a very, very big change. I mean, people weren't incredibly enthusiastic about Mitt Romney, but they were voting for Mitt Romney. And, you know, a lot of it's against Barack Obama. There's people that liked Mitt Romney. He was a good guy. He has a good record, et cetera. He was sort of generically Republican in every, in every sense. And then, you know, I talked to the, uh, the head of Hispanic outreach for the GGOP, which is the least enviable job on the planet. And she is someone who uh, deleted things from her Twitter account uh, over the past six months when she took the job because she was attacking uh, uh, Donald Trump. She used to work for Jeb Bush. She's from Miami. And when I said to her, what do you think about blank, you know, Donald Trump, she gave these, these sort of Al-Qaeda hostage video uh, responses like, 
I need to support the nominee. It is important because of the Supreme Court. Same thing when I interviewed Paul Ryan about a month and a half, two months ago. I mean, even the people that are on his side that I've talked to have almost zero enthusiasm for him. And then, you know, I, I, last night was with some McCain, McCain people, two old McCain staffers, and my, something popped up on my phone, and it was a New York Times news alert that uh, Donald Trump said he would not defend the Baltic countries if they were annexed by Russia. And I'm like, this is the Republican nominee in 2016. Holy shit. Uh, the, uh, I, I want to uh, pick up on that hostage video thing. Tuesday night was definitely the lead hostage video night. So that's when Paul Ryan uh, talked. That's when Kevin McCarthy talked, uh, Mitch McConnell. These are, this is the GOP Capitol Hill elite. This is the power brokers who run uh, Capitol Hill, the Republican Party, who Donald Trump has been railing against, running against openly, sometimes by name, um, for the last 12 months. And here you go, go up there and swallow your humiliation in front of national TV. And Paul Ryan even was sort of blinking out uh, messages between the lines. Uh, I, I encourage people to go and, and look at it. He did it cleverly, in a, in a, not in the full Ted Cruz way, but um, He's, he uh, blamed Obama for being racially divisive in this country and then went on an extended uh, jag about how it's really important that the values of the Republican Party are the values of inclusiveness, of caring about people, of not dividing people on race. And you can read the whole thing. It was set up as an attack on Obama and it just reads like an attack on Donald Trump. Um, so he's blinking out his counter messages. But it's interesting. I think there's a there is a politics of humiliation here. Like Trump wanted, I mean, in the same way that he wanted Ted Cruz to be booed, he wanted the people who he ran against to show that they had been uh, they had capitulated. That's very interesting psychology. But also say this too, the difference between their lack of enthusiasm. I've talked about Armstrong Williams, the guy who's Ben Carson's right hand man for the last 16 years. Uh, he was he was like, I am coming around to dealing with wrapping my mind around that I have to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, like the pain is dripping up his face. But on the other hand, there are people who seem to be elated, who have spring in their step. I talked to, I interviewed Mike Lee on uh, Tuesday. He was the leader of the kind of revolt on the floor over parliamentary uh, issues on Monday in the uh, Utah delegation, which is a full open revolt against the Trumpian uh, GOP at this point. Mike Lee's having a good, I mean, he's pissed off. He talks about the toxic uh, environment created by Reince Priebus and the uh, Republican National Committee. And he says a lot of very rough things, but he also looks like a man who is liberated. And, uh, by, and I asked him point blank, are you voting for Trump or Gary Johnson? And he said, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So you have a couple of guys. It's interesting to me that the disloyal opposition right now are the are two guys who were best friends, uh, even though Cruz shipped him uh, a time or two on criminal justice yep. reform. But it's people who who call themselves constitutional conservatives. We have issues with them, especially Cruz, because he's an opportunist dickhead uh, and he believes uh, uh, in weird ideas about freedom. Lee is much better, I think. Uh, but I, where I saw Lee speak was at a, um, uh, a millennial Republican uh, caucus. So delegates who are under uh, 35 years old, so like 10 people, um, uh, actually more like 30. And Nick Gillespie and I were, were uh, interviewing them and just asking them about their basic worldviews. They were not selected on ideas. They were selected on just age. Hey, if you're under 35, come here, let's drink. Uh, and they all talked like Rand Paul. Um, they all said they liked Rand Paul or Ron Paul, and that's what got them into politics. Uh, they all, when Mike Lee was speaking to them, he was speaking about the liberty message, about constitutionalism, and all this kind of stuff. And the majority of the ones that we asked point blank, who are you voting for? Uh, these are Republican delegates that we asked them who they're voting for in November. They said, 
Gary Johnson. Wow. Um, so yeah. uh, it's Gary said the same thing to me this morning. He said he hadn't gotten a single uh, negative comment. No one came up to him and said, you know, fall in line, anything like that. He um, said that his, his thousands, his, his, his number was a thousand people that had come up to him and said, we're voting for you. And to the point of Mike Lee, who I might be talking to this afternoon, um, if you, he said he's not voting for Donald Trump. He said that multiple times. He reaffirmed it uh, yesterday. I think he said it to you too, Matt, right? And so uh, he if, said he's still making up his mind. Yeah. Um, he, I think that mind's been made up. It's a bad thing for Mike Lee, for, for his uh, political future, for his constituents, for everything, to say that I'm dumping the party and going to a third party while remaining a member of the party. It's logistically, it's kind of a hard thing. And, and, and what a mutual friend of uh, ours and Mike Lee has actually said, you know, come on, Moynihan, do you think that when Mike Lee goes in the voting booth, because, you know, politicians aren't people that don't go into the voting booth, they feel like they have to. They, I mean, abstaining is probably more of an offensive thing than, than going to the voting booth and then just not telling people. But he said to me, do you think that Mike Lee, you know, for instance, is going to go into that booth and pull the lever for Donald Trump? No, you don't think that. Is he going to pull the lever for Hillary Clinton? Absolutely not. You know, he's got to pull some lever. And as, as uh, Gary Johnson said to me, he said, it's a multiple choice test. It's not in a written exam. So you got to choose somebody else. And that's going to be me. I think he's right about that. So, I mean, if only we could get these people to admit this publicly, it would be really, really interesting to see the number of elected Republicans who are opting on principle to, to support Jerry, Gary Johnson. Not because I think he's a great candidate, because let's be honest, I mean, Gary isn't the best candidate. I mean, he's, he's a happy guy. He's, you know, he's a strange interview sometimes, you know, um, and I like him a lot, but he's not the most presidential person in the world. Um, but obviously people are protesting and protesting with a ticket with two two successful governors on it. So, I mean, this is a great, great moment for people who hate the duopoly it in is, Washington. Uh, best best relative I, to what, however? Not not merely just he is not the most presidential guy. It is best relative to these other goobers. And uh, it of course, yeah, they're, of they're not particularly not particularly swell. Did you have something else, uh, Matt? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, uh, encourage people to go look at, uh, as Michael was talking about how uh, uh, Gary Johnson isn't always presidential and he's kind of, he's, he's real by his own strange lights. Uh, uh, Nick Gillespie and I um, uh, did a Facebook Live interview with him when he came to town yesterday afternoon. And I encourage people to look at it because it's pretty, uh, pretty funny. It's very right outside of the entrance to the Quicken Loans Arena, the queue, um, on 4th Street, which is the cute little... Uh, restaurants and stuff and we're just interviewing him and this crowd builds and this thing happens uh, around it it becomes it comes thing <laughs> but late in the interview and this is what everybody picked up on on Twitter and elsewhere uh, 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 Johnson was like was supposed to do a like a, a prop setup where he like pulls out his iPhone and talks about how wonderful the future is and we have so much computing power but he realizes he doesn't have his iPhone and we're in the middle of an interview with live streaming on Facebook there are many thousands of people watching this at a huge throng and he's like oh shit I lost my iPhone. <laughs> oh, and, and you could see he was totally destabilized. He was like a stoner who just like had a, a, a buzz killed. Some the truck hit him. And for the next like two or three minutes, he was totally panicked walking around looking. Nick was like, uh, Governor, you've got to snap out of it. It was like, totally, it was like a, a, a human real moment. Uh, uh, and I, I told him afterwards, like, dude, you got you to gotta lose your iPhone more often because uh, the kids out there are, are digging it. But uh, it's, it's funny video. So, so it we've touched on Johnson. We talked a, a bit about Cruz. I mean, clearly the, 
they've had a bit of trouble filling their schedule uh, and, and finding quality speakers uh, to come up and chat for them. And by quality, I just mean recognizable uh, Republican brands. Um, so they, they have really started to get creative. Uh, last night, I saw Michelle Van Eaton, uh, who was uh, the Chiron on C-SPAN, said she was a young, longevity marketing vice president. Uh, and when I saw that, I shot a, I shot a note over to, to Moynihan, actually. Um, like, this lady <laughs> is in multi-level marketing. Yeah. I mean, she is an Avon salesperson. Um, I know this because my, my oh. mom uh, sells longevity, and she's always trying to get me to take it. She listens to the podcast now, uh, which, is, which is strange. Hi, Mom. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that is really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I, I wonder, in terms of the other sort of quirky um, stuff that you guys are seeing being there firsthand, um, how bad and awkward and strange is it? Uh, is everyone aware of how bizarre it is for them to put a, oh an God. Avon yeah. salesperson up to, uh, to talk about the, the president of the United States? And I'm sorry to denigrate Avon. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, it, does it surprise you in any way that somebody who makes their living off of multi-level marketing scams is up there to endorse somebody who makes their living off of multi-level marketing <laughs> scams. I mean, it's essentially the same thing, but smaller sticks. I mean, my favorite thing was uh, Anthony Sabato Jr., oh, yeah. whose uh, credits uh, include things like uh, Little Women Big Cars, in which he played AJ. It's a TV series I've never heard of, but you know, I just I looked at his IMDb because I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this makes the speakers list here makes you long for Zell Miller. I mean, this is anything, anything but these hacks. But it does bring us to an interesting place, though. And I'm interested to hear what both of you guys think about this is the interesting place is um, is uh, uh, tonight's one of tonight's speakers. Everyone's talking about Donald Trump's speech. Is he going to be on prompter? Is he going to go on off, off script? Is he going to go unchained? Or is this finally the moment? And everyone is always talking about how um, you know this is the moment where he reigns it in and he becomes more presidential. Is that going to be the? I mean, this is all uninteresting, doubtful and uninteresting. He'll have a prompter. He'll go off script. You know, he'll probably use half of it. Who knows? But more interesting than that, from my perspective, I'm sure from from perspective of you guys is uh what happens when peter Thiel uh walks up to the prompter a friend of a friend of mine was going to meet with him and uh Thiel canceled on him and said this is i think yesterday maybe two days ago and said i'm working on my speech and i can't i can't take time away from that um and they had planned a breakfast and everything and they're friends and i'm interested to see because what my theory is and i am about to be completely proven wrong <laughs> is that some something is going on here this is some troll don't get that peter Thiel, who wants to live on an oil derrick in the gulf of mexico so there's no taxes um is going to line up behind somebody who doesn't want to touch medicare doesn't want to touch medicaid um you know is looking to tax wall street more etc what is his deal what is he doing and what is his angle? I mean, he's a delegate, okay? Then he's going to get up there as the first openly gay person to address the Republican convention in 16 years and say what? Matt, Camille, tell me, and, and, and tell me that he's not going to go full Trump. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that he's not going to go full Trump because uh, Peter Thiel, what we know about him, and he's a guy who self-identifies as a libertarian, uh, of course, but above all, he is a, uh, a next-level contrarian. 
he's not content to say things, as uh, was the subject of one of his recent books, um, that, hey, as a businessman, it's actually good to go out and find a, a market in which you can be a monopolist. Find a monopoly, you make all the money, and then you get it gets competitive later. But whatever, you you hunt for monopolies. He's actually kind of right about that. Create your own monopoly of of a product that doesn't exist, and that's where the the fun action is. You can make that argument. That's not how he made it. His argument was competition is bad. Like he's got to go the next step, the asshole step, and he's always been like that. And I, I mean, as a as a philanthropist in uh, in uh, libertarian world, he's sort of uh, known as. Uh, just being very, uh, how, how should I put this uh, kindly, uh, rough around the edges. He wants to, he wants to, uh, I mean, like his uh, foundation to tell, encourage kids to drop out of school. It's not enough to say, hey, look, you don't have to go to school. There are other options. He's like, no, screw it. Here's money because dropping out is good. He's a next level troll and always has been. That's part of what uh, who he is. So I think he might identify on one hand with uh, Trump. Trump's a pretty good next level troll too. Think about how Trump is basically hijacking in, in doing a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and then making them eat shit about it all week, which is incredible. I mean, that's a so maybe they have an, a, a normal affinity here. But the best theory of, of Teal that I've heard, and it's so good that it must not be true, uh, is that uh, as someone who sort of has some anarchist uh, tendencies, he's just trying to burn this whole thing that, down. That would be. Um, he's trying be to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, do you uh, do you have enough uh, confidence that uh, Teal's on your side, Camille? I, I hope so. Um, I have no inside information. I have not met the man. Uh, I know some folks in his orbit. No one has told me anything. I haven't bothered to ask. Um, but I am totally hoping that this goes all Guy Fox. Uh, but I am I'm skeptical. I just have no idea. Um, but I'm also not going to watch. I'm going to go see Star Trek, and then I will uh, catch up on all this later. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so. I mean, obviously, the, the, the convention had been a little, little nuts. Uh, make America safe again. They're working again. They're first again. I don't know what the theme is for tonight. Uh, we don't exactly know what uh, the Donald is going to talk about either, um, although we have seen a lot of reporting, um, and there's been plenty of media coverage. He did that 60 Minutes interview. There was the longish New York Times uh, foreign policy article. Uh, so... Uh, I suspect there are some things that we can tease out of all of that uh, and we can use to posit uh, some of the things that he might talk about. Um, and I'd also love to sort of get back around to some of the, the foreign policy things that um, that Moynihan hinted at a little earlier. So I, I wonder, maybe we start with what you expect from him tonight um, and yeah. then perhaps we, we dive into some of the specifics. Yeah, I think the, I think the best response to what is he going to say tonight is who gives a shit? Uh, because, you know, what <laughs> Donald Trump says has never mattered. It's, this is a, a campaign about feeling and about emotion and not about facts and not about, you know, I mean, Donald Trump on, on trade. We don't have to talk about that. We all know how absurd and ridiculous this is. The idea of having Mexico pay for a wall, which, I mean, he privately tells the New York Times, yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to deport 11 million people. So there's a point when all that gets to a, a kind of crescendo to me and says, then why should I listen to anything you say? I don't care because what essentially happens in CNN, Fox, MSNBC, all these people crowd their live shots after the speech and they give these banal reactions. And it's all about how people reacted, how the crowd reacted, which is not a good sample. It'd be for Republicans at this point. How the crowd reacted, you know, uh, uh, was, was he on script? Was he off script? What notes did he hit? It's not about substance. It's not like there's no policy. Have you heard any policy? at all in yeah. this uh, convention. No, it's fucking... It's kind of astonishing, like, It's none. fucking 
D-list stars and Avon salesmen. I mean, this is what we have uh, right now for, for, the, for the RNC. I mean, look, think about it this way. Everybody universally acknowledged, universally, even people that really, really loathe Donald Trump, myself included, that uh, Melania's speech was the best, the highlight of the convention and would be the highlight of the convention. And then what happens? I mean, it's a shit show from, 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 from the very beginning. And this idea that it matters what Donald Trump says, I mean, it's all, this is a, this is a wrestling match. He comes out that first time in a, in a plume of smoke, like he's the undertaker or something. And, you know, then there's booing of, of Ted Cruz. His, his wife has to be taken out by, by security for her own safety, et cetera. Um, and then now tonight is the end of the WWF or WWE or whatever it is now, um, throwdown. This is, I mean, if you thought the Republican Party and previous conventions were thin on policy, this, I, I, it just doesn't even exist. What is there to debate? It's all about, it's is temperament. That, is that, temperament. Is that, not, is that not part of the rationale, though, for the sort of the Republican establishment and perhaps even a guy like Peter Thiel to get involved here? Um, Donald Trump is a blank canvas. We, we probably all saw those reports in The New York Times uh, that Kasich uh, was offered the opportunity to be the most powerful vice president in history, responsible for both domestic and foreign policy, while the president, Donald Trump, uh, busied himself with making America great, this, uh, which I suspect uh, uh, is just flying around on an yeah, Air Force and One. I, think, I mean, it, they, they want to they want to color in this canvas, so they're getting involved now and, and trying to actually uh, tell him what is reasonable and to saying. clarify to clarify for readers, uh, viewers, and listeners, whatever they are, guys are, uh, and I'll let you throw it right back to you. To clarify what that New York Times uh, reference is, if you're unfamiliar with the New York Times reported that John Kasich was uh, uh, approached about the VP spot. And they said you would control domestic and foreign policy. And his response was, "What would the president do?" To which the aide said he would make America great again. This is what we're dealing with right now. I mean, it's it's absolutely <laughs> stunning to me. But anyway, let's let's also think about uh, what that says to the vanishing number of dull-witted jock sniffers on the anti-war, both left and especially libertarian, who think they've got one of their own team in Donald Trump. Um, think about that for a second. John Kasich, right, who on the campaign trail and in debates said that we need a Gulf War sized war against the Islamic State and we need to enforce a no fly zone over Syria and we need to support rebels yeah. in overthrowing the government in North Korea and we need to bloody Russia's nose. And granted, I'm all in favor of blooding Russia's nose whenever because fuck communism. Uh, this is the guy who the anti-war champion wanted to pick as vice president and run his foreign policy. And that gets back to uh, also your question in, uh, about uh, Trump and foreign policy. Look at the roster of speakers Monday night and what they said. Here is your great you know, uh, anti-war, anti-neocon hope. He's got Tom Cotton, who is Bill Kristol's hand-picked favorite son, up there uh, railing against the Iran deal, uh, talking about all the things that we got, actually not even listing all the things, which is talking in blunt emotional language about what we need to do. Rudy Giuliani, noted anti-war, uh, you know, skeptic of intervention, Rudy Giuliani, uh, uh, just like, uh, uh, okay, uh, I might have to uh, transfer myself a little bit, uh, talking, he had Ryan Zinke, who's a, a former, uh, I think, Marine, who's also one of the biggest hawks there, talking. So the the people who were uh, up there, uh, including the non, you know, uh, uh, political types like uh, uh, mothers of, uh, of uh, fallen soldiers and things, they were saying 
to the extent they had any policy ideas, and they really didn't. I tried to round them up up, uh, up uh, on a post on reason about how uh, uh, the Republican Party is a, a party of emotion and not ideas. Uh, there were things like we need to uh, uh, remove the handcuffs on our troops in terms of rules of engagement so that they can actually, uh, you know, fight uh, instead of with their hands tied behind their back. Um, this is the kind of thinking that got us Abu Ghraib. This is like post night class. 11 emotionalism uh, and wedded with a guy who knows nothing about foreign policy. So, like, what could possibly go wrong? There? Yeah, yeah, not a not a very good look. Um, and and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the underlying point here, being that we have no idea uh, what his policy perspectives are, um, is uh, is a true one. And if there is going to be any sort of prognostication about what's likely to happen um, in in January of next year. Um, is on foreign policy um, almost certainly a much more muscular uh, foreign policy in some respects. Um, but I, I do wonder uh, about the, the sort of transactional, uh, as it's been called, nature of, uh, of some of the Donald's foreign policy proposals and perspectives. Well, Camille, you're talking about transactional uh, foreign policy here. Uh, uh, I'm curious to hear what uh, Moynihan, because he's the, the fake neocon among us, um, uh, uh, and hangs out with him. I, I'm pretty sure that you were in a bar till about seven in the morning with Matt Labash. Is, he, is it Labash actually a neocon, though? He, he is an anti-neocon. Yeah. He is not a particularly political person. He's the only person affiliated with the Weekly Standard who publicly uh, opposed the Iraq war and wrote about it in the Weekly Standard and is the only person to have written about it in a Bill Crystal publication. Um, he thinks uh, Bill Crystal's uh, foreign policy is out to lunch. He's definitely not a neocon. So he likes Donald Trump. That's a, that's very interesting. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, my, not that either. Michael, from your perspective, to the extent that we've heard anything about foreign policy here, which I was talking about earlier, but also the uh, New York Times interview with Trump and the kind of ripples of it, and then the uh, the, the lost tribe status of many of the never Trumpers crowds, many of whom are now becoming I'm with her uh, types. The Max Boots uh, army has uh, joined uh, Hillary Clinton. What do you make of like the status of where uh, foreign policy is at in uh, Donald Trump's Republican Party right now? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, debating uh, Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy views is uh, like everything else, like I said before, kind of a fool's errand because you know, when you have people in the anti-war brigades or the sort of libertarian foreign policy uh, brigades, you know, the people say like, oh, yeah, Donald Trump's better because, you know, he's he's a non-interventionist and he says Iraq was a bad idea, even though he did support it and then opposed it and then probably supported Libya and then, then opposed Libya. Uh, at least he's got to that, to that point now. Well... Um, Here's the thing, is that every every two seconds, Donald Trump says something different, because when you hear these things about NATO, it, it appeals to people from, you know, the liber left libertarians, uh, anti-war libertarians, uh, sort of paleo-conservatives, because he says, the NATO alliance is a waste of time, our American foreign policy has been a disaster, etc. But my friends, my comrades, wait five minutes, and the wind will blow a different direction when we're going to kill their families, 
we're going to carpet bomb them into into um, the ninth century, in which many of them already live, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and then you know we are going to have a safe zone in the center of Syria. How do we plan on building that big, beautiful safe zone in Syria? Are we going to subcontract it to uh, Mexicans and like have them go? I mean, all of this stuff involves American power to varying degrees. And the thing about Donald Trump is he uses a decides to use American power in his kind of fever dreams, uh, you know, in a completely willy-nilly sense. There is no consistency. I I mean, talk about like Ron Paul, there was, I mean, there could be Nazi hordes pouring over the border from uh, into New Mexico and be like, you know what? We've been kind of meat to these guys. We should just let them take Mexico. It's like Donald Trump's like, let's bomb these guys and then let's be nice to him. And then, I mean, to him, mistaking Trump's foreign policy for some sort of coherent, um, you know, Taftian paleo conservative vision is totally crazy because what it is is establishment busting. Busting up the bushes. Uh-huh. I hate the bushes. Roger Stone has a book like the Bush Crime Family, and you know Roger Stone's a very good friend of Donald Trump's. What this is about is not about some principal foreign policy, not about the fact that he doesn't, you know, worries about blowback, not the fact that he worries about Muslim lives, who lives he doesn't want to save in any way to come to the United States and, and live freely here. Like there are lots of people resettled around us in Cleveland right now, Syrians that have come recently. Um, he has no interest in that. The only thing that Donald Trump's foreign policy exists to do is to say, I am anti-establishment and I will be friends with Putin. I, I'm, I hate the Libyan intervention. I hate what the Bushes did. These neocons ruined the party. And then I'm going to kill terrorist families. None of it makes any sense. I was going to offer a tepid defense of, uh, of Ron Paul, but I'm going to leave it alone uh, because of that one time <laughs> that he wasn't nice to me uh, on the independence. So we're even now. Um, but I will say, uh, just articulating my own perspective on the weirdness that is this current election cycle and, and Donald Trump in particular, there are certainly those um, libertarian weirdos who think um, that we have an ally uh, in Donald Trump, that he will be non-interventionist. I, I am not among them. Uh, if anything, my perspective is that when Donald Trump does awful things, people seem to pay attention. Um, the, the, recently, there was a, a piece in Wired um, that was co-authored by a bunch of Silicon Valley types um, advocating for um, sort of better immigration policy, better technology policy, um, all sorts of important and useful things. Um, and uh, I don't know, dude. I, I think when Donald Trump is responsible for foreign policy, if he was responsible for foreign policy, um, you would actually see a lot of uh, a lot of uh, there would be a lot of transaction costs uh, for him in trying to advocate for anything. Um, you would have Republicans and Democrats who are aligned, and perhaps for the first time, like making a real effort to constrain. Um, the office of the president. Uh, one of the many things that Ted Cruz talked about yesterday, um, both during his speech and in a Politico podcast about uh, a, released a couple hours before he spoke, was this need to restrain the office of the president um, and the fact that there are the, the Liberty Caucus in Congress who would be interested um, in working together uh, to combat a President Trump. I think that's important. I think that's useful. If something happens that forces that contingent to get more engaged uh, and to not merely capitulate, that's a good thing. The danger, of course, though, is that that folks could just capitulate, um, that folks could try um, to satisfy 
um, or that the guy is so incompetent that he does things that are completely reckless and end up getting everyone killed. Um, but I, I don't know. Hey, Camille, uh, you'll be happy to know that I was at Freedom Fest before I came out here. Uh, and uh, uh, we were doing a panel about uh, politics in this uh, election. And someone, a uh, reason reader uh, and uh, probably a, a fifth uh, column uh, fan, because we had a lot there, um, asked the question, like, is there any way that you could see Trump could be, like, ultimately good? And I said, well, there's the Camille Foster fucking theory <laughs> of, the, uh, of the backlash. Metro. Uh, and, and I, and I art articulated it. I gave you like 90 to 120 seconds of how it might work out and how it could be plausible. And it was only at the very end. And then uh, I said, but he's fucking crazy. So, uh, <laughs> it, it, I didn't say it will happen. I didn't say it will happen. I'm saying that, that in general, we have in fact seen reforms after really, really awful things have happened after policy excesses. And quite honestly, I mean, even a Trump campaign could give us a little bit of that recoil action um, but I'm not prognosticating here. I'm, I am describing a possible world, uh, one that I hope is real, uh, because honestly, I, I'm a little pessimistic when it comes to achieving reform by any other means. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about how awful Donald Trump is. And at this time of year, in any campaign cycle, most of the conversation is, oh, special interests, oh, there's too much money in politics, oh, we need a third party that's viable, as if those are the principal problems that we have in America when it comes to politics. The fundamental problem is that Americans, a lot of Americans want really bad things. They want government to do things that are simply impractical, um, if not completely implausible, and often at complete odds with one another. Um, and you could fix all of those other quote unquote problems. Uh, and so long as Americans continue to want bad things, um, we will have uh, we will have significant issues so long as you know your your fear uh, for your own economic well-being leads to economic protectionism um, or or trying to go after the the investment class or the banker the banksters um, I, I think that that's a real problem so at some point I mean someone does need to articulate uh, an affirmative vision that is persuasive to voters that's that's really the only the only tangible hope. Uh, I don't know that defeating defeating Trump saves the union, so to speak. So you just need to fix Americans. That's what I'm hearing. I'm trying. You. I'm trying. We're doing we're doing it every day, week by week. Um, <laughs> we, we really we really do have to keep this one a little shorter. So we, we may go for a bit longer. Uh, I wonder, I mean, a, another thing to the extent there are sort of concrete policy things being discussed. And even here, there aren't any specific ideas. Um, radical jihadism is, is something that we we're still hearing a lot about. I mean, this is happening on the heels of, uh, of the, the recent attacks um, in France, um, and those attacks in France were not isolated incidents uh, in the sense that we've actually seen a number of, of recent terrorist attacks uh, everywhere from Baghdad uh, to Bangladesh um, to Beirut. Um, I, I, wonder, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on how that all comes into play here. Um, with with voters um, or with with folks at the convention, I suspect that's something that that Donald will continue to speak to. Um, thoughts? Well, um, there's a solution to this, according to Donald Trump, um, and this is the kind of most you know significant policy that he's come up with is that if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama specifically Barack Obama, because Hillary Clinton has, says the word Islamic jihadism, 
then everything will be solved. Although I think she's, she's, she's been doing she, it, she, 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 she has. And it's actually a smart move because it fends off this completely lunk-headed attack that, you know, we had a conversation about this before on the show and why I think there is something to um, arguing for calling something uh, by its actual name. But the weird thing about this is that there has been a... Um, this is a continuation of the Trump incoherence argument. If he mentions this tonight, he will mention in the next breath the, I, the that Barack Obama can't even call it by its name. There's a point where, you know, can we please move on from this and have some sense of what one does next to prevent the next Orlando, to prevent the next Paris, to prevent the next Nice. I mean, and unfortunately that list can, I could, you know, keep on naming places for the next, you know, three minutes. But I mean, there is no sort of coherent thought in, as I was saying before, in, 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 in Trump's foreign policy, but it's all about this idea of jihadism, which by the way, was almost non-existent in uh, 2008, 2012, more so in 2012, it was almost not involved. These were not foreign policy elections. The fact of the matter is Republicans know they pull well on foreign policy, mm -hmm. and they're trying to make this a foreign policy election because, you know, it not only does it pull well, it's actually a real existing thing now that ISIS exists. But I was just on the radio with um, a guy who's the president of Afghan, Iraq and Afghanistan, veterans of America, whatever it is, can't remember, but absolutely lovely guy and we were talking about what it's like to be a prop of both parties because everybody trump included says i'm going to raise money for these charities he you know god knows where that money is if it ever gets there and everyone says um i'm going to support my veterans he had a great line which i'm sure he's very practiced line he said you know i think it was babies puppies and vets people will always cheer everybody boos when they say yeah you know thank give cops give, what is it cost oh, it depends on the audience but yeah yeah, it depends, yeah. It depends on the audience, yeah. But, like, no one's going to ever, you know, hiss when you say, you know, let's thank our veterans. But, you know, being these props, this is the, this is the great prop of this, of this convention, is people talking about veterans. But, you know, the actual issue for veterans is, are you going to send them in harm's way when they shouldn't be sent in harm's way? And are you going to suggest and say, I will overrule anyone who doesn't want them to commit war crimes? So, I mean, we are in a place that, you know, the, the conversation between George W. Bush and John Kerry in 2004 is an unbelievable example of Straussian sophistication compared to what's happening right now. It's, you know, I support vets. Oh, and by the way, I, you know, I'm going to make them commit war crimes if I need to. This is where we are. It's, I mean, it is, a you know, I hate the cliche phrase now, dumpster fire, but this is a, a, as close as you can get when it comes to a conversation about foreign policy. Yeah, there, there is something about um, you, you mentioned sort of calling it calling it by its name. And we did talk about this a lot. I, I continue to have like really significant concerns um, about sort of the emphasis on this particular phrase uh, and on the very simplistic ways in which a lot of this stuff is described. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, while we, we mentioned a bunch of places, um, the attacks in Nice, for example, um, ISIS is desperate to claim credit for as many of these attacks as possible as they continue to lose ground um, in the Middle East and various other places. Um, and, I, and I suppose these things will get even more interesting with the, the recent uh, failed coup attempt in Turkey, which is clearly straining relations with the United States and making it a little more difficult um, to use uh, the, the aerial munitions there. But, but I think there's something to be said for like the, the lunatic in Nice who carried out this attack 
uh, being someone who was radical, quote unquote radicalized very, very quickly, um, who seemed to be mentally unstable in various other ways. Um, I, I continue to worry that if we stitch this stuff together um, with too broad um, a thread, uh, that we, we end up empowering, empowering ISIS. We end up making it easier for them to do what, what they're principally interested in doing right now, um, which is to, to create and stir up uh, and manufacture um, sort of disagreement and discord. It's, it's certainly what they've been doing uh, in stoking sectarian tensions uh, in Iraq uh, and beyond. Um, and even between, uh, even between U.S. allies, I think there's some, some of that going on. Um, so making themselves look bigger than they are is, is important uh, and obviously playing on fear of that particular organization and of terrorism more broadly um, is certainly something that a lot of conservatives have become pretty expert in. Uh, well, I would just say to one thing uh, or two things. One is that you're wrong, uh, but we don't have time to get into how wrong you are. Uh, and two, that uh, Moynihan is totally right when he says that this is the extent of the strategy on display, is that if we just call it by it's this name, then bing. I, I, expect, uh, they'll, I expect they'll shoot some people and drop some bombs, too. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I suspect they'll do that. And, and the bottom line is that that hasn't necessarily been working uh, particularly well either. Um, so I don't know. We need, we do need a little bit more. I want to get, we have a, we have a hard out uh, coming out uh, here and I want to make sure that we have time for some idiot wrote this just because I want to throw it. I want to throw it to Moynihan, which is to say we saw Melania Trump give a very nice, you know, speech on. And we discovered that, what was the count, uh, Michael? Like a 29 out of 32 words were exactly the same. Since you're a plagiarism expert, then, then uh, I got to help you for your, your career. We're going to put that on your gravestone. Um, but uh, can you just like give us a, a, a ranking in, on the Biden scale of plagiarism or on the various plagiarisms that you've looked at? Where does this one stack up? Because I'm, I'm genuinely curious. It's a 10. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean, imagine... There are other examples of this in the past, uh, Deval Patrick, Obama, uh, Joe Biden, um, uh, Neil Kinnock. Uh, but, you know, I've never seen anything where you could take two pieces of video, transpose them on top of each other, and it is matching up almost completely. I mean, the rhythm was the same, the timing was the same, the cadence was the same, but like slightly more Eastern European. But I, I mean, the fact, the embarrassing thing that this, this uh, was the high point of this totally awful convention. Everyone agreed that this speech was good. Uh, everyone. And they were sort of, you know, basking in this. He, she did a great job. Everyone loved it. The campaign was saying that, look at how everyone loved it. And it was partially from Michelle Obama. You can't get better than that, folks. But the, the best thing about this is in the tradition of if you're not a journalist and you're plagiarized, nobody gives a shit, is that there? I, I'm trying to find a political... Uh, book, you know, it's the ones that have the candidate, the senator, the whoever, uh, you know, in a suit, standing on the cover in front of a flag and like an eagle swooping down behind them. Uh, it's hard to find the one of those that hasn't been plagiarized. Um, you know, Rand Paul had gotten in trouble for this in his book. Uh, ben Carson has gotten in trouble uh, with his book. There's a million examples of this. There's something about political plagiarism that is, uh, you know almost acceptable. It doesn't really affect people because uh, Melania says, like politicians, I, I wrote that speech, they refer to it as their own speech, and then 
you know, failure is an orphan, right? So all of a sudden the speechwriter comes out. She previously, this is incredible. She previously said, I wrote the speech. And then the speechwriter comes out and says, oh, I'm so sorry. But the amazing thing that I found about this uh, convention, and sometimes you got to get back into it, uh, into the world of, of these rat bags to remember it, but is that everyone here is lying all the time. And they do a nod and a wink, and they're like, okay, you know, you know what I'm saying. And then the, the camera goes off, the tape recorder goes off, and they tell you what they really think. You know, it's everyone here is a professional liar. And so when one of them is also a plagiarist, I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised at all. I'm like, oh, okay. That's like, you know, that's like, you know, going to the doctor and they tell you you have inoperable cancer and they say, oh, also, uh, you broke a bone in your pinky finger. Uh, that one doesn't matter compared to the cancer bit. So, I mean, that's what I thought about that. And nothing about it surprised me. Um, and I, I looked into this woman who may or may not exist. I think she probably does. Um, and her other writings. And um, there is a reason that she plagiarized from... Uh, Michelle Obama or Michelle Obama speechwriter is because she might be one of the worst writers in Christendom. <laughs> so, so you do in fact believe this story, this story that she, uh, that someone else wrote the, uh, someone else wrote the speech. She wasn't responsible for the plagiarism. Uh, it was this no, married person. Uh, no, I do believe that. Yeah. Okay. And I don't believe their story about it. There are various, um, there's a various uh, kind of binders and you flip through them and you binders pick your full, of, full of you, women. Finders full of excuses, <laughs> and you you pick uh, the pleasures and excuse. This one was a unique one where someone dictated something exactly verbatim over the phone, and she misunderstood that this was uh, uh, from Michelle Obama. Yeah. Um, what happened was is she went to the Michelle Obama speech, and then she uh, uh, highlighted it with her mouse, and then she right clicked and 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 pressed Control C, and then went back to the speech and pressed Control V. That's how that happened. And if anyone tells you differently, they're a liar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's a good one. Well, gentlemen, uh, I think we've reached the, uh, the end of our time together. Uh, have a good time out there. Not too good. Um, we will, uh, we'll palaver again soon. Uh, thank you all for joining us out there. Uh, subscribe, share with your friends. Apologies for the uh, goofy audio uh, and other interesting technical issues. But, dude, this is real life. These guys have jobs to do. They're at the friggin' convention. <laughs> They're bringing it to you from the floor. Come on. We'll see you all next week. Okay. Back to the floor. Bye, Camille. Later. Bye. The Trojan Hawks.